Blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. Microphones of madness. Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. Wee. Yeah, and Clark Ashton Smith continues. Today we're talking the Dark Eidolon. Uh, the story was finished in December of 1932 and published in January of 1935 after some rewrites to the third act. Is that correct, Steve? Yes. Um, apparently when he first submitted it... Um, Weird Tale said, yeah, it's just too long. Too many notes. <laughs> and so um, he he reworked it, and it was resubmitted and, and accepted. Um, I do know, and these are the notes from my copy of the Penguin Classics, uh, so they're Joshi's information, that he really liked this story. <laughs> he, he was uh, talking about it to uh, in a letter to uh, Durlith. Mm-hmm. Um, describing how uh, if they made a film version of it, they'd have to use a lot of special effects and, and uh, movie tricks. To, they to would pull it off. They totally would. But it just it's just funny that 1932. You don't really think of people having Wanting the option. Like, yeah, having right. their, their the the pinnacle of their art being optioned into into movie rights and that's what like today we're like oh yeah that would make who would play um such and such in the film version of this and we do that all the time but movies are ubiquitous mm-hmm. this is like movies well, this was all... like starting out right right so i mean even better i mean you know clark ashton smith is writing this story you know um Caligari, I think, had already come out. Uh, Metropolis was already out. All those Fritz Lang movies were out. I think we were getting talkies at this point. Right, in the early 1930s. So so I'm sure that kind of, you know, he went to the cinema, saw that sort of thing, and went, you know what? My stories would be like, this would be fantastic to see this type of, thing happened on the screen with one of my stories well you just you don't really read that in lovecraft's um, no letters, you don't read that in or Robert howard's letters no. uh, yes i believe that the the ascension scene in the outsider would be perfect a perfect vehicle for uh lon cheney you just don't see that <laughs> right you, you, you don't see that although I, I have a feeling that uh, Bobby Howard probably entertained the thought of Conan or Solomon Kane becoming a movie. Yeah, possibly. Because Conan, I, you know, I don't remember the Errol when, when all the Errol Flynn movies came out. But it seems like Solomon Kane, he would have been like, yeah, I want Errol Flynn for that. Yeah, and Errol Flynn would be the logical choice to play. Solomon Kane. Solomon Kane or Conan. Really. I mean, he might be a little slight for Conan, but no, no, no. Robert Howard would take acting classes and played Conan himself. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not talking about Bobby Howard. We're talking about Clark Ashton Smith and his fascination with turning the Dark Eidolon into a movie. And it is a very visual story. It, it is. It's um, it's very cinematic. Um, he, he maybe he was a genius and recognized that. Um, some some odd notes. Crap, sorry. Football got in the way of my notes. Apparently, football. Who are you, George R. R. Martin? Yeah, that's me. Um, the <laughs> setting for this story. Yes, is um. Zothiqua or Zothique. I don't know how to pronounce that. Zothique. Yeah, I would say Zothique. Zothique is actually his um, dying earth setting. Mm -hmm. And apparently it is um, his richest setting in terms of the number of stories he physically wrote for the setting. Yeah, I've I've, I've been told when we were planning on doing this that, you know, Go with the Zothique setting rather than the Hyperborean. Everybody talks about Hyperborean. Well, that's the thing. is like Hyper- Hyperborean is what he's known for. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, he actually delved more into Zothique mm-hmm. than the Hyperborea, which I find interesting because some of my favorite literature is dying earth literature. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's, there's two things. I, I spotted the dying earth thing. It's right there in the first paragraph. And I'm like, yeah, Steve's going to be like on this, like stink on shit because dying earth is his thing. Um, but another couple of things we have going on with this story, particularly in setting, is that one, it is the chronologically linear progression from Hyperborea. Hyperborea and then uh, history, and then right. at the other end of time is Zothique. Right, and and that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, However... I know, I, I know that there's been... I don't know if it's official canon, but in the weird mythos mythology, I know that that Zothique has been incorporated into the mythos mm-hmm. as being like the end of the the end of Earth. Yeah, so that may be the official end of Earth um, setting of the mythos, but it can't be because Clark Ashton Smith's Earth is not our Earth. And it's very clear because he explicitly says that the Earth of Hyperborea and the Earth of Zotique, Zothique, is flat. Well, there'd be a few people these days that would contend with you <laughs> about that. It's right there in the story. It's well, not they like just, they just had a conference in like South Carolina, right? Of people, right? Oh, those people would would say that, yeah, the Earth. This he's telling the truth. The Earth is flat. So, there you go. But, but as far as what real knowledge and real science says, the Earth is round ish. It's an what is an oblated spheroid. Yeah, it, it's yeah, it's <laughs> quasi round. Yeah, it's round enough. <laughs> it's rounder than flat. That's for sure. <laughs> A flattened spheroid. So, yeah, there's flat in there. Right. But Clark Ashton Smith's Earth is flat. He specifically says the water falls off the edge into nothingness. As, like, eyewitness accounts rather than something else. Or speculation. Now... The elevator pitch for this story, I would call the most elaborate dinner invitation ever. I would say that um, it's a warning on why you shouldn't treat peasants like shit, because you will radicalize them. You could do that as well. You could do that as well. But we have, you know, evil Martha Stewart over here, because... We'll get into that. Now, Actually, that, that's one of the things I, I really like about this story is there's nobody that's good in it. <laughs> Everyone yeah. is evil. And Now, I wanted to talk, since you brought that up, I wanted to talk about that. I know you wanted to talk about uh, his use of language and Greek words and, and his ties to Gene Wolfe. Um, so you want to go to that or do you want to go with everybody's evil? We can talk, we can start start off with everybody's evil and work our okay. way up, <laughs> <laughs> and work our way up. Okay, so yeah, Clark Ashton Smith has our king, the king of Umaus, which is a prop apparently an eternal city on his earth because Umaus was the setting of some Patrazeros. Right, that's where he was from. Now Zotula, the king is supposed to be a very evil man. Yeah. Um, he, he trampled on our, our our nemesis, Zamira, back when he was a young beggar. When he was a boy. When he was a boy. Tromped Trump, him with his horse. He survived. He got better. And boy, did he get better. Well, he got better, be- but he never forgot. Right, he never forgot. And really, you know... What not? How not to treat peasants and the the most elaborate dinner invitation ever? Yes, but overall the story is about revenge. So Tampa Zeros was from Uzaldarun. 
but thought, his friend's name was Ampalios. Right, but I thought uh, Umaros, Umau, no, that was in that book, the story as well. No, and and that's a complaint I have about Clark Ashton Smith. When, and we'll talk about that when we talk about language. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because, but anyway, yeah, we, we've got the, these evil people. Right. Now, truthfully, other than stomping on this kid with his horse and riding off, Zotula, the king, is, I don't really see anything that would describe him as being evil. You know, unless you're going by this puritanical seven deadly sins thing. Well, he is called um, evil by the god of evil. Right. Which, but what know, we that's actually... Good enough, that's good enough credentials for me. If the god of evil is saying, that that guy's evil, don't touch him because he's mine. He, mm-hmm. he, you know, he, he, he uh, supports the cause. He brings more and more people into, into my fold. He's untouchable. I'll go with the fact that he's evil. I mean, that's like good enough on the resume for me. Right. But but as far as actual on-screen action, he is he is a hedonist. Uh, he's very much a Dionysian type of king. Well, he did kill his father. He killed it. He murdered his father out of jealousy. That's, that's pretty evil. And you can you can say that Zotula sins. If we are listing his sins, uh, pride, uh, lust, gluttony, gluttony, and sloth. Right. Because because the king well, never wakes up before noon. And envy. And envy, to, to an extent, envy. So that's like five of them? Right, five of five them. Five out of seven? Right, because, because um, Namira, our evil wizard, embodies the other two. He certainly does. He's got wrath down. He's got he's got <laughs> wrath in spades. Um, and I think I think uh, I think that the emperor has some wrath. I just think he just doesn't have as much as um, the the sorcerer. I'm not even going to bother with these names, right? But I I just don't think he has as much because, um, well. The whole reason that this little beggar, this little beggar boy, ends up becoming this powerful sorcerer, because he was trampled by the prince, mm-hmm. and he has focused every piece of hatred and vengeance that his life is to to make it so that he can enact revenge. Yes, <laughs> He's, and like, and not and not just like revenge, like look. Punk, you stepped on me when I was a horse. Stab. He's got this like Xanatos gambit going on. Oh my god, he's got like the most elaborate plan in the world. He's got such a plan. <laughs> Let me tell you about this plan. That his all-powerful evil god basically says it's too much. It's too much. It's just too much. You know, if you want to take revenge on the guy, fine, do it. But you're taking out the entire empire of my worshippers to get revenge on this motherfucker, and I want no part of it. Mm-hmm. So, he's and, like... And, and I I'm, know, and I know you're going to ask somebody else, and there's going to be there's gonna be hell to pay, quite literally. He says, don't blame me for what ends up happening. Right. If the god of ultimate evil tells you no, and if you go ahead and do it, there's going to be consequences, and you're not going to like them, Mm-hmm. You should fucking listen, right? And overall, the theme of the story is they, that old adage of if you're going out for revenge, it's best to dig two graves. Yeah, or three in this case. Or oh, three, several thousand. Yeah. <laughs> We're just about major players, right? Yeah. If you're if you're gonna if you're gonna start digging graves, you might as well dig one for everybody. Yeah. Actually, spoiler alert. Everybody dies. And I just don't mean like the guys that are named. I mean everybody. Right, dies. right. This motherfucker, this motherfucker brings out the end of the world yeah. for so, revenge. Um, yeah. So uh um, after after he plays uh Mine's Bigger Than Yours yeah, for about so a it, couple weeks. <laughs> it is no longer uh an eternal city when when this plays out. Right. <laughs> 
It's an eternal dust pile. So, so what happens is King Zotula has declared a holiday. Um, you know, I passed a kidney stone today. Celebrate, and the entire kingdom gets drunk as a skunk. I think that happens often. I get the impression that uh, yeah, it like definitely it. happens every day at the palace. It's just an average Tuesday. But he's yeah. declared a celebration and everybody can get drunk. And as they wake up Zatula and his people in the castle and the people of the town, they all wake up hungover. They look out, and overnight, this gigantic castle has just appeared right next door to the, the king's palace. Right. And it's bigger. And it's it's bigger, more it's, opulent. More opulent, it's darker, it's more imposing. It's like, this is a proper evil castle. Yes. <laughs> what you bring to the table, my friend, is not evil. Your architects are not evil. I have the evilest of architects. Right. And, you know, in, right out front, there's a sign that says, you know, Lehman Brothers Realty. <laughs> <laughs> It's Trump Towers and uh, it's, it's, it's essentially it's essentially it's like is Donald Trump is Zotula. No, Donald Trump's not smart enough to be Zotula. He's definitely not smart enough to be Namira. He's not smart enough to be any of these. Guys. He's he's like he, he's he's that other he's that other kingdom over there that Clark Ashton Smith doesn't write about. Right. Uh, <laughs> he he so, lets Durlith write about that. Right. Oh. Oh, shots fired at Derleth. Come on, Wisconsin. Right. Fire back. Now, now the castle is bigger. It's meaner. And he's like, uh, guys, guys, go go check that shit out. How dare, it's blocking my view. It's blocking my what view. It's blocking my view. It's what the fuck? <laughs> no Who one cares. Yeah, no one dares do that. Who put that there, and how drunk was I? <laughs> and but, uh, so he sends some people to go check it out. As soon as he does, a fucking giant skeleton walks out and says, what's up? And the guys, they run back to the castle scared to shit. I mean, really, drugs help. I mean, mm -hmm. There's, like, this is no lie... It's very trippy. Right. It's oh, yeah. very trippy stuff. I mean, I don't know if, if Clark Ashton, Ashton Smith smoked pot or opium or whatever, but he certainly had that vibe when he wrote this. Oh, oh, definitely. De it definitely has a very, like, fever dream kind of vibe. And, and the king is constantly, you know, every single day he's getting so blasted he just passes out wherever he's sitting. Yeah, but like even like the stuff like a giant skeleton that has like eyes still like glowing eyes. Mm -hmm. Like the uh, there's a scene where uh, the the wizard is in his in his his throne room and dismisses the usual mummies and ghouls and skeletons right. from from his presence. So I mean, it's trippy. <laughs> It, it is. It is. Oh, and he has this the staircase that goes up, but the final flight of stairs actually goes down, and you're standing on the ceiling. Yeah, I mean it's just crazy shit. Yeah, I mean this this stuff is just like I can understand why he wanted to see it as a movie because it is trippy uh, and it's very visual. It's I mean, if not in a movie drawn by fucking Jack Kirby. Yeah, Kirby would do great with it. But um, what we what, what happens is a few weeks later, you know, he gets every night. He, there's this this haunting, this all poltergeist type activity of giant horses stomping through first the garden, then the outside of the palace, and then on the final night of the haunting, the horses are inside the palace. And everywhere they step, they leave black hoof marks burned into the ground. Right, but no one can, no one actually witnesses the horses. They just no one actually witnesses horses. Hear the hoof and see the evidence afterwards. Right, and so 
he sends his wizards out. He sends the he, he talks to the priests, and the priests say, "You know, you need more sacrifices, dude. Give us more money." Well, it's the gods; they're angry. Give us more the, money. The gods, the gods are angry. You need, you need Jesus. We will pray for you. Fork over some cash. Very clever. And they leave, and then the wizards come in, and he's like, "You know what? You guys are going to go talk to this guy because you're a wizard. He's a wizard." Do you guys have the same wizard attitude? Right. You guys have the same wizard attitude. You know this about these kinds of things. You're probably part of the same wizard local. <laughs> Those wizards are like, oh, no, no, no. We're Hufflepuff. We're, we're <laughs> clearly Slytherin. We're, we're, we're local 237. We don't know where he's from. So they send the union rep down to <laughs> Samara's castle. <laughs> And he comes back, they, they go in, they come back out, and they're fine. Uh, they come back and they say, you know, he's really a nice guy. Uh, he let us in, he, you know, gave us lunch and talked to us. He was very congenial. Um, he says, there's, there's going to be a feast. He's going to have a feast in a few days. Um, he'd like you to join him. And, and everything will be clear. And everything point. will be clear at that point. He'll the explain weird. the whole thing. Now, the weird thing is every one of these wizards that goes there comes back with a different description of what happened. Mm -hmm. so, so they all come back with the same message. Yeah, you, you're going to find out. But, like, each one had a different experience when they went in there, which, again, is really fucking trippy. Right. Now, also... After the wizards deliver their message, they get the fuck out of town. Yeah, I wouldn't you? They 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 find the the farthest place to be, and they get there. They sell off all their belongings, whatever. They're gone because they know some shit is about to go down. Right. The appointed day comes. A bunch of mummies walk in. Mummies and skeletons. Mummies followed by skeletons walk in. It's like we are here. Good evening, sir. We are here to be your personal honor guard to escort you right across the garden here to uh, Lord Zamira's castle. And they introduce themselves as being the kings of. I forget what the name of the desert kingdom was. Yeah, but it, it's. But they are the dead kings of this kingdom. Uh, the, the skeletons, you know, introduce themselves. Hello, we are the skeletons of a race of giants that everybody's forgotten about. Right. And consummate we're warriors. consummate warriors. We're we're badasses. We wear snakes for hats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how bad I mean, this is. This guy is, you know, Lovecraft is morose and everything's like, oh, poor me, poor me, poor me. You know, and, and Conan and Solomon Kane are just, I'm lone badass. You know, Clark Ashton Smith just pulls out all the stops. He's like, you know what? This guy is going to have bodyguards that are so badass they wear fucking snakes for hats. Well, he's got, he's, he's got a sense of humor. He does have a sense of humor, and it's. Um, a, and I don't think he takes his his writing as seriously, right? As, as um, Lovecraft or or Howard did, and I think, and I, I think some I of that has to do with the fact that he was also known as a, as a proper poet. And I might be wrong, but um, I seem to remember. Um, I think it was the the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast mm -hmm. was talking about the uh, that collective story that they did, the um, uh, challenge from beyond. Yeah, challenge from beyond. Um, I think they had mentioned that Clark Ashton Smith was actually the most popular of them all at the time, mm -hmm. and that he he had the most um, covers on Weird Tales, and and people you know when. So I, I I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, there you have it, and I could definitely see why because it's entertaining. 
it, it, it's entertaining, and he does not shy away from just making these stories completely absurd. Yeah, I mean, there it's a, it's a over the top setting, and he makes it over the top. It's really cool. Right, it's it's a very flamboyant type of and, uh, type of... and and where well, I don't think Lovecraft would even go here with anything. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think Lovecraft would touch this. Um, and and oh. Howard. Howard, Skeletons, how blasé. And and Howard, I don't. His his point of view is always from his hero, right? And yeah, you get sorcerers are bad, but but here you get like into the mind and the inner workings of how these sorcerers work. Right, right. So, so you you have you have you know someone like Lovecraft going, hello, um, yes, skeletons, oh. Where are the tentacles? Where are the tentacles? And Robert Howard going, hey, yo, where's the sword fights, man? That's that's my Robert E. Howard. <laughs> I, I, and I think, yeah, it's, it's a little bit too um, cliche, I guess, for, for Lovecraft, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, skeletons and mummies. Right. Uh, you know, because those are like the things you would see in in movies. You would see these things in movies. Plus, or you read about them in, in right. you know in, in older. These things would be like the villains, but Clark Ashton Smith, you know, treats them with with a proper respect. These guys are kings. They walk like kings. They talk like kings. You know, these are not, you know, Lovecrafts. You know reanimations of a degenerate society. Right. And it's also hard with Lovecraft because Lovecraft, you know, even his like super fantastic work is all dreamland stuff. And it still doesn't have this kind of zany feel to it. Right. It's very zany. Like we were saying with Sapantra zeros that it's damn near a comedy. Yeah. And, And there's, and, there's horror elements to it, and yeah, at the end, it's like, wow, what the hell? Mm-hmm. But it, it it it's more it's more like a of a Cecil B. DeMille kind of thing, right? And he he definitely seems to have his tongue spectacle. firmly planted in his cheek. Yeah, it's spectacle, right? Well, sensationalism is what sold covers at Weird Tales. And I mean, you have like armies of mummies and skeletons calmly escorting the emperor and his favorite uh, concubine to mm-hmm. dinner with right. the sorcerer king. Right, and boy, is that a dinner! Yeah, it is so over the top. He get the. I mean, first off, you have the the whole pissing contest between Z- Namira and Zutulo. Where it's like you have all your retinue of you know lords and nobles and stuff like that. I have kings that act as my gophers. Well, and he he has like everybody's deepest darkest secret or most evil act mm-hmm. um, spread out right before them. Um, the king, uh, the emperor, is served by his dead father. Yes. Um, his concubine is served by her first lover, who she betrayed on the Isle of Torturers. And got and took very much glee in yeah, so, sadistic and, and death. You could only imagine that everyone had their own special little servant. Right. And and you had like the the wine bearers were fucking demons and you know monsters of just mind blowing proportion. Right now, we had mentioned like, would you like some cake? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Although I imagine that even though these are like slavering demons with and centaurs and whatnot, that they all have posh accents and they serve their um, serve the cake with their pinky out. That's right. Um, We had mentioned earlier that the uh, Osidon. Was that the name of the super evil god? Yeah. Um, wanted nothing to do with this, and then actually warned um, Nemea not to go through with this plan. He um, decided to go above the head of his god 
and mm-hmm. uh, make dark packs with even greater demons of unknown depths. Right. Someone who the Lord of Evil says, don't fuck with these guys. So, because on in Zathik, you have the return of the old gods, and you have the return of the old devils and demons as well. But there was there's also a third faction of even stranger alien entities, right? Have involved themselves in the affairs of mortals, and this is what happens. <laughs> Right, so he goes and he talks to these guys. Talks to guys who are so evil that just their breathing freezes his beard. Yeah, well, they skeeve out the the god of evil. So Mm -hmm. it takes a little bit. Right, right. So so you're at this dinner. You're being served by um, your greatest sin, come flesh. And uh, that's not enough. (laughs) Nope, that's not enough. He's like, um, have, right? Have some wine, you know. It's, we found it in ancient tombs. Um, have that's some meat. Now, his 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 main course, his wild boar roast. You know, it's the boar that is fattened upon the corpses of the torturer isle. Seasoned with adder hearts and cobra tongues, grind <laughs> yeah. in Satan's piss for three days. Yeah, you know, and then and then it's like a know, good fucking barbecue right there. You know, have have some salt for that. It's distilled from white tears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he goes all out, and then he ends up um, with the entertainment because he wants to really impress this guy. Um, by killing all the guests. <laughs> right. He's like, here's tonight's entertainment. A uh, bunch oh. of dancing skeletons that will right. crush you. Well, first off, he has his singers come out. And they're like, you know, shrieking, you know, the atonal piping of hell. Yeah, I can only oh. imagine this is what it was like in the royal house of Meldon Bonet every night. <laughs> You know, he, he Marquis de Sade walks in and says, "Wow, that guy's out of control." Yeah, so <laughs> the, the entertainment just get more and more horrible and ridiculous. And every time he goes, "Oh, that wasn't good enough for you," and then how about this? Right, <laughs> hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> and he calls forth his dancers from a swirl of mist in the mist parts. And there are skeletons, and they begin to tap their toes and stuff. And then they start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they start stomping upon his retinue of of concubines and servants and things until their blood runs like wine from grapes in a press. Yeah. And he's like, so- oh. And, and even that must not be very impressive. I have one more thing in store for you. And Come this, to the top of my highest tower. This entertainment requires an entire kingdom as a stage. And here we see the ironic end of the empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you, when I was... And, and this whole time, the, the emperor does not know why this is going on, what he has done to offend him. Right. He has no clue. Because really, one evil incident out of a lifetime of evil incidents, even like, means nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. And this particular evil incident, running over a beggar kid, probably means even less than that because it's a fucking beggar kid. Right. He didn't even, the dude didn't even think about it. It was like the prince to an empire. So he didn't even, you know, it's like running over corn. It just right. happens. Right. He's like a, a, you know, truck full of mangoes. Yeah. <laughs> and so he brings Zotula and his concubine, his favorite concubine, Obexa, to his highest tower. And his highest tower is even better because it has a magic balcony that flies up into the sky. 
and they fly way up, way up, way up. And he's like, okay, look out before you. And you can pretty much see the entire kingdom from that vantage point. Everything, you know, you're looking down on everything. And he says, and he starts speaking the names of these ancient evil gods. I, I and, swear one of these names has to be Frau Blucher. Yeah. <laughs> well, he essentially summons the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Because the, he gets horses to stop on his kingdom. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like, like it's, it's, it's like, yeah, that is the textbook definition of poetic justice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you dare stop on me with a horse? Right. I stop on you with but, a thousand horses. So, you know, but if you think about it, every one of his entertainments thus far has been some aspect of the incident. He's yes. trying to make the, the king or the, the king solve the riddle of who Zamira actually, Namira actually and, and, is. And the king never does. He has And the king never does. Because it's in, it was insignificant to him. Right. Which pisses off uh, Namira even more. Right. So, so he summons these cosmic horses. To, and they just lay waste to the entire kingdom of Zylak. Blucher. And avoiding his house. And the king's like, well, that sucks. And he's like, you still don't know who I am. Well, come with me. I have one more thing. And he takes him to his secret lab, brews a special concoction... And, you know, the thing, well, oh, well, after you show me all this, you're just going to poison my ass. And it's like, no, drink. Look, it's fine. And he drinks it. And he has an out-of-body experience. And Zamira, or Namira, is, all the names are confusing. <laughs> like I said, we'll get into that. Yeah. Namira possesses Zutulo's body. Uh, his favorite concubine is kidnapped off camera somehow. He brings him back downstairs, imprisons Zatula's soul in, the in a statue in the dark Eidolon, which is a statue of um, the, the demon lord. Poseidon. Poseidon, I believe. Poseidon. I know it was Poseidon with a different beginning. Right. And forces him to watch as he transforms the lower half of his body into essentially a centaur type of creature and proceeds to stomp on his girlfriend or yeah, his wife. Okay. And, you know, do you not now know who I am? No. No. <laughs> no. I was the beggar boy that you ran over. And, and, you know, it's seeing and seeing this. over a lot of beggar boys. Right. And in seeing Obexa get essentially fridged, drives Zotula to, like, do something heroic and stop this evil man. But he's trapped in the statue and he can't move. So Poseidon starts to whisper to him. He's like, I can help you with this. I will grant you a fraction of my power momentarily. So you may take your revenge. Yeah. He said he wouldn't be held responsible for it, but he didn't say he wouldn't get involved. He's like, that dude is a filthy traitor. Snitches get stitches. Well, he destroyed the entire country. Right. Of people he liked. He's like, I like these people. Yeah. Of his worshipers. These are my people. (laughs) He killed them all. So, uh, yeah, go over there and and take care of business. So, he goes over there. The statue walks. Walks over and brains the dude. Smack, one hit, done. Yeah. And then he's able to rest in eternal yeah, he, peace. He, he gets his reward by getting to uh, go to the beyond. Where, Whatever that uh, is. Right. Whereas um, the the wizard, he does not. Um, he has to go back 
into his old body, but he is brain damaged by the shock of everything that happened. Mm -hmm. So he has amnesia. Right. And uh, sees himself in the mirror and it triggers him. And he attacks his 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 own form in the mirror, right? Because he thinks he's still he thinks he's Zotula now, right? And, and uh, so and he's he, like, I'm looking at me, looking back at me, looking at me, destroy, 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 and he just essentially attacks his mirror with a magic sword until it breaks down to the the handle or the hilt. And then keeps attacking until he's he's smashing the jewels in the hilt. He just keeps going at it and going at it and going at it. Yeah. And then the horses turn around. And come to smash the building that they left standing. Finish the job. And uh, yeah, so everything, everybody dies. Everybody dies. Now... Um, the thing that I really enjoyed about this story um, in terms of um, its connection to dying earth lore, mm-hmm. um, because this is like one of the, the, the first stories of, of that genre. Um, and it really informed how not only the setting is of, of dying earth, genre like where the sun's going out and the the continents have shifted and all that great stuff but um you get you get a couple of um of tropes that are born right here um it's so far in the future and and mankind has forgotten so much numenera is also like this Mm -hmm. um that technology becomes magic and um and you, you revert to this um, sword and sorcery like existence um, politically and socially mm-hmm. but you have this this forgotten history that that is so amazing like when you when you come upon devices and stuff that it might as well be magic thunder the barbarian thunder the barbarian yep um, and and Jack Vance is all about that and and Gene wolf is on top of that. I mean, that is the greatest part about the of his Dying Earth books, uh, Book of the New Sun, is that you you he's such a good writer that it's seamless. And uh, you, sometimes, because he's telling it from the point of view of a character, you don't even know that he's um, he's handling a, an object that you and I would be familiar with. Mm-hmm. But to him, it's this amazing. Um, magical object it's it's fantastic so that that all starts here and um the the other thing and you had talked about it a little bit is the language Mm -hmm. um in in this even, even in the name um he uses a lot of old greek um just words to describe everyday objects right uh, uh, even the the word eidolon is an, is a greek word meaning like a spiritual representation of something mm-hmm. um so you get this it, it kind of gives you this flavor of being um not modern in setting uh, almost um ancient in setting and a little bit of alien because you're using these unfamiliar words right um that are actual words that have actual meaning um, interspersed with a bunch of made-up words for places and names. Yeah, and, and the, the made-up words kind of piss me off because it's really it gets really confusing and it's, it kind of sounds like that doesn't belong in there. And maybe that's just because I've read Vance and Wolf before I've read this, and they, and they take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, in in Gene Wolf, everything is like based in some like ancient Greek name even like characters' names themselves. And so instead of, of um, calling somebody Namira or Umphalos, which just sounds, doesn't sound organic to the language of the story, 
mm-hmm. he would have um, a Greek equivalent and and right. stick it in there. So it, it actually does sound it. And, and there's articles written about people like, what the fuck is he talking about? And you're like, well, an Eidolon is a blah, 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 blah. Eidolons actually show up in the Book of the New Sun. Right. As um, holographic images of aliens and some of his... Um, past dealings of, with people who are dead end up sh- coming back as Eidolons mm-hmm. because he'd be familiar with their forms. Um, so I thought I'd just throw that out there that not only is uh, Ashen Smith the father of, of the, the dying earth as a genre, but really it informs his language and use of language informs how that genre evolved. Right. Right, and 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 like you said, the the use of Greek to evoke this sense of antiquity, since we are talking about a essentially a fantasy tale or sword and sorcery type of tale, you know, many columns and and the the Greek words interspersed kind of give you that little visual cue as to what these things look like. Yeah, um, it's cool because you you know. I don't know what an Oodles was until I looked it up. It's a concubine, and he uses it several times. And mm-hmm. you kind of, you know, get the gist of it. Right. You can you can pick it up through context because he also uses the word concubine. Right. So you can definitely get a lot of it from context, but it's just a, a, in terms of word choice and how that affects you as a reader. It's very it's a very clever device mm-hmm. that well, that um. I th- you know, Lovecraft does it too, but he doesn't do it to the same effect. With Lovecraft, it seems a little bit more like he's trying to be um, use the language intellectually, mm. as opposed to using the language to enhance the um, the, the scene and, well, and the flavor of what you're reading. Mm-hmm. Well, you, yeah, you have you have Lovecraft who 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 wrote in a very um, you know, almost like a flowery style, but more like a textbook. Or, or, and he he really pulled a lot from like you know 18th century prose writers. Yeah, yeah, oh, most definitely. And Ashton Smith was a poet, and he was one of the West Coast Romantics. And his work, you can tell, while he uses the flowery language, he uses it more in a poet's way than as a you know, this is just how I talk. He's he's deliberately choosing these words to evoke these images and to give each sentence a certain meter, right? To it, and these, and you get a lot. It's very visual, as yes, we said an, several times already. It's unfortunate that he uses these made up names because some of them are just like, just like stick out. And great on me. They they stick out because it seems like Clark Ashton Smith was sitting in a fucking pub one night, uh, you know, having whatever he liked to drink, and trying to eavesdrop on two drunk guys down the bar in a full room of people, and he's like, oh, that's a great name for a city. Oh yeah, King Zatulo. <laughs> And he's just like trying to transcribe this like slurred, mush mouth conversation, and he comes up with these names. Yeah, it's just unfortunate because the rest of it is so well crafted that that having these made up names, it just kind of it's like a slap in the face. It's it's something that like irks me about a lot of like mid century science fiction mm-hmm. as well. Is, you know, especially like sword and planet stuff, right? Where right. you know they'll—it's a gun. They'll call it some some weird fucking thing. I can't. I, I can't even think right now. That's obviously a made-up word that really has no relation to any language. It's just like this word substitution, right? Well, you, yeah. There's there's that aspect to it too. But I think these names have kind of a. Kind of, kind of work with the meter as well. I mean, you have Zotula, and you know, and it kind of brings forth, you know, Attila, or something like that. 
but you have Namira. You know, and I'm sure that I'm not saying that how he would. And Namira is from this desert kingdom. And it has that kind of like it would have you know, evolved from like Farsi or something like that. Maybe. And and I think that's one of the things like like Zothique sounds French. Zothique definitely sounds French. Um, you know, Umaus. And I I know that a lot of his um stories take place in, in France. Mm-hmm. So I think he was I think where where you had um Howard was a um a Galophile mm-hmm. and Lovecraft was a uh an Anglophile. I think Smith was definitely a Francophile. Yeah, probably. Probably. You have the capital of the, the nation of Zylak. You know, there's certain I, I think Right. I think he's um, using these names for the sounds that they make rather than. Yeah. That kind of of irks me. Kind of more like more like uh, the poet's craft of poetry, meaning to being spoken. Rather than just read. Yeah, I don't know. It it, it kind of irks me. And he he could have done better. Uh, he could have done better, but I will tell you, I did read parts of this story aloud as I was reading. You know, and I, was, I did a lot of it at work, and when nobody was around, I was reading aloud. <laughs> so I, I think the names affect me a little bit differently because I was reading them aloud, and I was pronouncing the the, the sounds of the words in the sentences stretched out to a certain meter so I think there was definitely something poetic there so yeah that's the Dark Eidolon that is the Dark Eidolon very good story that's very right. excited to uh, to finish this out with uh, the seven Geases mm-hmm. yes uh, begin begin Clark Ashton Smith with Thasagwa and uh, finish and it out with Sagua. Yeah, well, Fasagua's all right. Underrated. Fasagua yeah. in our lives. Yes. Fuck Cthulhu. We want Fasagua. That's right. That's right. He's got that kind of super deformed cute thing going on. That's right. He'd be a great chibi. Right. He'd be a great chibi. But, you know, he's, he's Pikachu, essentially. <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah, yeah, catch us next week for for that one. And uh, until then, keep your 30 luck points. We'll catch you later. Yeah, see ya.